You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. You ever written any love letters? <laughs> do, you, do you remember maybe uh, maybe in middle school? You know, I mean, any more they start out early in elementary school, but most of the time it's a letter like, "Would well, you like me?" and "I might like you." To you know, if you like me, and uh, it, it advances a little bit more as you get in the middle school. Then in high school, it can kind of get into really sloppy type stuff. Uh, Becky, of course, who's my wife. You know, most of you know that, unless you're just a a first-time guest, uh, we dated back in high school some. And uh, I can remember us writing letters to each other. And it wasn't that we would just write letters kind of at the end of the day and exchange them. We would actually write letters and exchange them in between periods of classes in high school. So kind of you know, near the end of the class when I should have been taking Notes and what the teacher was saying, I was writing a note to hand to Becky. And, uh, you know, she might have been doing the same thing, too. And then when the, the bell would ring, we had kind of worked out to where we knew there could be a rendezvous point on Wilkes Central High School. It's kind of funny because Scott, I, uh, Dennis, Dennis Jones, Dennis kind of raised his hand right there. Dennis and, and myself went all the way through elementary school and high school uh, together. I know you can't talk to him about the way I used to be. Uh, or anything like that, but he probably remembers seeing me do some of this stuff that I'm about to say. But uh, anyway, when the bell would ring, I would dash out trying to get to a place to where I knew Becky would be passing by, and we'd switch out notes. And by dash, guys, I mean I would run. I would run out around the sidewalk. I probably bumped into people, might knock some people down. I would literally jump shrubbery. You think I'm just hamming that up? I'm not. I remember jumping over shrubs. I could do it back then. <laughs> on, on the way to get to her so I could hand her a note. And you've only got like, you know, three minutes or something. So you're running across campus, handing notes off, and trying to get to the next class. And I did that often enough that Coach Hoffman, who is the head coach of all the sports at Wilkes Central High School and also the track coach, he looked me up one day at lunch trying to enlist me to be on the track team. I'm not lying. He actually did that. Because I, he, he had evidently seen me flying across campus, jumping over hedges, and he thought, you know, well, if he can do that, he can do this for us, you know. And, and matter of fact, I could have done it really fast had they put Becky at the finish line with a note in her hand, you know. <laughs> and, and then, you know, you, you'd run and, and, and you'd want to hurry up and open it up and read it. So kind of the first of class, when I should have been listening to what the teacher was saying, I was also taking time to read this note. Now, now, the reason I take time to tell you that today is this. Jesus wrote a love note to us. Now, we're doing a series that's called Seven Letters. You can see there, but I don't want you to, to think that that just means that's what he wrote to us. Jesus gave us a whole Bible of love letters. And the thing about it is this, guys. We, especially as believers, we ought to be so excited to hear something from Jesus that we run with anticipation and that people see it as a pattern enough in our life and the Bible means enough in our life to where we get the notice of other people, kind of like I did the coach coming up and saying, hey, you're running pretty fast. Why don't I come out for the track team? I need to be running to this word enough in my life to where people see it and they see I'm excited about it and they take note of the fact that I'm excited about the Bible. You need to be that way. I need to be that way. So we catch the attention of other people. Now, in particular, Jesus wrote seven letters or seven messages to seven churches in the book of Revelation. And that's what we're going to be dealing with all this month and about half of next month for seven Sundays. It was really one scroll that was written, and on that one scroll, there were seven messages to seven letters. Most Bible scholars believe that there's one scroll sent out, and the fellow that had this one scroll stopped at each church along the way. 
Matter of fact, the way it's laid out in Revelation would be the order that he would come to the churches as he would travel along the way. And most theologians believe that they got to read the letter that the other churches were going to receive also. You see, here's kind of the neat thing about that. If that were the case, he's writing to seven churches, I think, about practical things that was taking place in their ministries. And, you know, every church is going to experience different things at different times. And you can learn from what other churches are going through. So I think it was a neat thing. Now, now some people believe this, and, and, and I kind of hold to this some myself, but there's no guarantee this is the case. When you look at, at, at these seven churches in regards to prophecy, then a lot of Bible scholars believe that each one of these churches represent a different dispensation or a different time period, a different time in church history. Now, while that might be true, and there's some reasons why some people, you know, say that's true, while that might be true, I know one thing for sure, and that is this. He did write seven messages to seven churches, and he deals with specific problems and specific issues that those churches are dealing with. So, you know, if you thought this series is going to be about a lot of deep prophecy, I'm going to bust your bubble the first Sunday, probably, okay? And here's why. I, I, I don't deal a whole lot getting into prophecy for this reason. I don't think most people are ready for it. I think most of us need to get the practical stuff down. And yet people want to jump off and say, well, I want to understand all the deep things, you know, about Revelation and everything like that. Well, how about understanding you need to read your Bible every day, you need to pray and talk to God, you need to share your faith with people. There's some basic, straightforward things that he's told us to do, and if we're not doing those, why do we think that he's going to open up heaven and show us deep things since we're not even doing the simple things? So that's why, guys, I'm just telling you, God's going to call me to a ministry of practicality, and the way we're going to look at these Seven churches in these seven messages are going to deal more from a practical standpoint. Now, having said that, there's some background that I especially need to establish on this first Sunday about what's taking place. The guy that Jesus translates this to is the name, uh, his name's John. And uh, John, the apostle John, was on the Isle of Patmos, and he was there because he had been serving Jesus. He was there with a lot of political prisoners and other things like that of Rome, and he's exiled off to this island. Not because he's a bad guy, because he had been telling people about Jesus, and he had been serving Jesus, so he's exiled on this island. He's there, and Jesus appears and tells him, I want you to write something down. So to give us a little bit of background, we're going to read some verses in chapter 1 before we jump into where our message is. We're going to ultimately, in just a few minutes, be in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. But to set this up, I want you to see a little bit from chapter 1. So look at what's said here. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and He's the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he's there. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Can I just kind of give you a little side message? That's a pretty good thing to be on the Lord's day, okay? You know, we ought to show up wanting to worship God on the Lord's day. Now, I'll add to that every day ought to be the Lord's day for us as believers, So we ought to always kind of be in the Spirit. But he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard behind him, he said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the seven churches, and we'll deal with those individually. Just jump to the next screen. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He'll tell us what those are in a minute. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, which is a phrase saying, look like the son of God, this is Jesus standing there. I want you to look at this description he gives of Jesus. You see, some people want to last see Jesus on a cross. 
But I want to show you this picture of Jesus. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His, hair, his head and hair were, like, uh, were white like wool. It's like glowing. It's white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Just a little side message there. Read all through the Bible. When people have an encounter with God and they realize it's God, that's where they wind up. On your face before him. Because you experience his holiness in your sinfulness, his worthiness in your unworthiness. And he falls on his face. Then he, Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. Man, I love this. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. Amen? And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Right there for what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven lampstands is this. So pay attention because we're going to talk about this this morning. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This morning we're going to look at the first church, the church of Ephesus. And as Jesus writes to the first church, the church of Ephesus, he more or less is writing a letter to them that's a letter about forsaken love. A letter of forsaken love. And more or less, Jesus says this, if you'll allow me to paraphrase it. Why don't you love me? like you used to love me. Some of you may have felt like that in a personal relationship with another individual. Some of you may have written a letter like that before. And you know what it feels like to have been loved or to feel like you were more loved at some point in time. And you write a letter asking, why don't you love me the way you used to love me? That's what Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus. Why don't you love me the way you used to love me? And this letter, Forsaken Love, is a letter, and we're going to look at it in three different lights, three different ways. First of all, it's a letter to the pastor's heart from the heart of Jesus. It's a letter to the pastor's heart from the heart of Jesus. Look what's said in the very first part of this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel... Of the church in Ephesus, right. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. From the heart of Jesus, from the heart of God in the flesh, from the heart of the one who died on a cross and took his life back up so we could actually be believers and be part of the church. He writes to this pastor of the church at Ephesus. Some things we can learn before we get into the main part of this message. This is just kind of a, I almost, not, I almost didn't bring this forward, but God kind of rocked my world with this this week, so I need to bring it forward because it really, really spoke to my heart. So I want you to look and understand here that he's writing to a pastor. And first of all, we need to glean this from what he says. A pastor is to be a messenger of Christ. A pastor is to be a messenger of Christ. He said to the angel, and the word angel means to bring good tidings. It means a messenger. It's used in the Bible implying that he's writing to the pastor. He's writing not to some angel with wings flopping around, but he's writing to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And he says there to the angel of the church in Ephesus, 
right. He's sending a message to the pastor. The pastor is going to receive this message first. That means he's going to have it as a burden in his heart. I think the messenger was going to show up and go directly to the pastor. The message is written down on a scroll. John writes it down, and it is sent out to go around to these seven churches. And the messenger will show up there in Ephesus, and I believe he probably took it to the pastor first. Paul and Aquila and Priscilla had planted the church in Ephesus. John, who writes this letter, had been highly involved in the church at Ephesus. And he records this down, and he sends this message out to this church. The person that left the Isle of Patmos would have arrived at the port of Ephesus. And the port of Ephesus was a a major port. It was like a big place of commerce. A lot going on there where this church had been planted. And Jesus sends a message right straight to the heart of this pastor to share with the church at Ephesus. Some of it is good. I mean, some of the stuff we're going to see that Jesus tells the church in Ephesus is great, and some of it's not so great. And here's the thought behind that, guys. I'm supposed to proclaim to you the good and the bad together. I'm not supposed to select and choose. I'm not supposed to be up here saying things that I just want to say. I need to try and be the best that I can, a messenger for Christ. And if he tells me to tell you good things, thank God for that. We'll talk about good things. But if he tells me to tell you some serious things, some bad things, some things that need to catch our attention, then if I'm really going to be his messenger, then I have to tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly all together. So that's just the first thing you need to grab hold of. The pastor is to be the messenger of Christ. Second thing I want you to notice is this. The pastor is to be under the control of Jesus. Look what he said there. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Back in chapter 1, we saw the seven stars represented what? The seven stars represented the seven angels. The seven angels are the pastors of these churches. So here, he's saying that these words that he's given, these are the words of him, Jesus, who is holding the seven stars in his right hand. As I study that this week, I shared it a little bit with our men at our breakfast yesterday. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. You read that, and I had to stop and evaluate how how much am I in his right hand. How much am I as a pastor of this church in his right hand? Maybe the pastor of the church at Ephesus had to evaluate that some. How much am I in the right hand of Jesus? And in the Bible, the right hand gives the thought of power or strength or control. So that conveyed to me this. I need to be sure that as I am in the right hand of Jesus, he's the one that is directing me and he's the one that is controlling me. In other words, guys, I'm supposed to be under his control. I'm not supposed to be under the control of some special interest group in politics or even some special clique or some special interest group within a church. I'm supposed to be under his control. Now, let me qualify that because I don't want you to think, oh, he's setting something up to where he's saying he's under the control of Jesus and nobody can say anything to him or challenge him on what to do. I'm not saying that at all. I'm human. And I need accountability like anybody else needs accountability. But I am telling you this. I'm supposed to minister underneath his control and not minister trying to please people. I am not called to please people. I'm not called to please you or the next crowd that shows up here or anyone else that may show up at Day 3 Church. I'm called to please Jesus. It would be an impossibility for me to please you anyway. I can't even please all my own family. Can you? And that's a whole lot smaller group than we have here. But I am called to please Jesus. Third thing I want you to get out of that is this. That little first, we're just still kind of the introduction in a way, getting into what I think is the main part of the message. A pastor must be aware of this, that Jesus observes the ministry of the church. Look what's said in the last part of verse 1. 
Jesus is the one that was there. And he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. What were we told in chapter 1 the seven golden lampstands represent? It represented the seven churches. And here we're told in the end of verse 1 that Jesus is walking among the churches. Did you get that picture of Jesus in chapter 1? He has eyes of fire. And he has eyes that can judge and eyes that sees. Guys, I want to tell you something. We need to be really concerned about this, that Jesus walks among the churches. And here's why. It is a comforting thought that he walks among the churches because, thank God, that means he's concerned about us. If you don't believe Jesus is concerned about the church, why did he take time to write seven letters to seven different churches? That alone shows me that Jesus is concerned about his church. Yes, he died on the cross for the church. That ought to show you how much he cares for the church. But not just dying on the cross for the church, he is still highly involved in his church. He's walking among the church, among these seven churches, especially as he writes here in Revelation. So that ought to comfort us. That means he knows what we face. He knows what we're going through. He knows the needs that we have. But guys, not only comfort us, it might concern us just a little bit. Because as he walks among the church, he's observing the ministries of the church. He, he, you want a reason why we ought to do things with excellence for Jesus Christ? He's watching. Now, you understand this already. You know, let me just be fully theologically correct. If you're a child of God, Jesus lives in you. Everywhere you go, Jesus is there. So he sees it all anyway. But this is just a special picture I want you to get in your mind of Jesus walking among the church. Imagine Jesus showing up at day three church. And Jesus on Sunday morning walks through. And he observes what we're doing. He observes our greeters. He observes what takes place and how we talk with each other out in the fellowship area. He observes our music. He observes the message. He observes the ministries that we're doing. Guys, That I'm telling you, that rocked my world this week for me to back up and evaluate. And we need to always evaluate and be sure we are doing what Jesus called us to do. The first thing I want you to get this morning is simply that. It's a letter to the pastor's heart from the heart of Jesus. Second thing I want you to get is this. It is an oh yeah letter to the church. Because part of what is said here is really, you know, oh yeah. Like, like, listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is kind of happy with some stuff that we're doing. Look what's said here. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then jump ahead here to chapter to, to verse 6, and uh, I'll come back to that in a few minutes also again. But he says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus wrote some very positive things there. I mean, you get the picture of it like this. Imagine it may be like a board meeting of a company. And the CEO sends a memo out. And in this memo, the CEO is saying, guys, you've been doing great. You've been knocking it out of the ballpark. I can't believe how great everything is going. That's more or less what Jesus tells them to start with. I mean, maybe as Jesus writes this letter and they first hear this part of the letter, there might have been some high fives taking place and maybe some guys bumping their chest and thumbs up and shaking hands and heads swell with pride and thinking, man, we've got it going on. I mean, look at what Jesus said about us. You know, they might have been saying, yeah, we're bad, we're bad, we're bad. Oh, yeah. Because look at these things that Jesus says. First of all, more or less, Jesus told them this. Your work has not gone unnoticed. I, I'm going to stop and be transparent about something. Guys, I get so busy sometimes and caught up in stuff, I may not 
think to say thank you as much as maybe I need to say thank you to you that serve in this church and the things that you do. And forgive me when that happens, but I want you to understand something. When you are serving Jesus and you're doing it for the right reason, guess what? Jesus notices what you do. He sees what you're doing. He says, your work is not gone unnoticed. He said, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I mean, this was a busy church, evidently. The church at Ephesus must have been doing a lot of stuff. And Jesus is reporting to them. And he's saying, guys, it's not gone without me noticing everything that you have been doing. I know your deeds. I know that you persevered, even in the face of the culture that you lived in. By the way, Ephesus would not have been the easiest place to serve Jesus Christ. There's a great big temple there called the Temple of Diana. It was around 425 feet long. Now, I want you to back up several years and remember when this was built. Our whole facility here is about 160 feet long. So it's 425 feet long by about 220 feet wide. It had, I think, maybe 127, something like that, pillars. And a lot of those pillars were covered with gold and jewels and things like that. Diana was the fertility goddess. So what they had going on as part of their worship was this. They had temple prostitutes. In other words, you could go to church, their type of church, their type of cult, their, you know, their type of ungodly worship, their type of worship of idols, but you could go there and part of your worship could be being involved with a prostitute. I don't know how that helped church attendance today, guys, you know? <laughs> hey, come to church. We've got the girl for you. We've got the guy for you. Now, you laugh, but that's what was taking place in their culture. Imagine being in a culture to where that's the acceptable norm. Imagine living in a city that that's the okay thing to do. You know what would be real easy to take place? Just to go with the flow. Well, everybody else is going down to the Temple of Diana, and they're hanging out with prostitutes, and they're supposed to be, quote, worshiping God while they're doing it. So we might as well go down there and do that. It would not have been the easiest place to serve Jesus and make stands for Jesus. And yet Jesus looks at the church at Ephesus, and he says, I know your hard work. I know your deeds. I know how you've persevered. Right in that type of temptation, in that type of culture. Guys, we live in a day and time that it's not necessarily the easiest time in the world to serve Jesus because there's a lot of temptation thrown out there for us. And we could kind of say, let's just go with the flow. I mean, let's just do what the rest of our culture's doing. Let's just do that. We need to be like the church in Ephesus. We need to make stands for Jesus. We need to work hard for Jesus. We need him noticing our deeds. So Jesus has given them a very positive statement here to start with. And that's why I said a moment ago, just maybe the letter was kind of like an oh yeah letter to begin with as he writes to them. Secondly, Jesus tells them your morality, your morality has not gone unnoticed. Like I said, they weren't going down to the temple and worshiping idols and being involved in the prostitution ring down at the local temple. Jesus said this to them, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. He's saying you don't have a tolerance for sin. Guys, that ought to be the message that Jesus can tell us. In our culture, we ought to be engaging our culture in reaching people for Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we wink at sin and we tolerate sin and we say anything that goes is okay. We need to say yes to what Jesus says yes to and no to what Jesus says no to. We need to say yes to what the Bible says and no to what the Bible says. We need to love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. And Jesus says here, I know that you can't tolerate wicked men. So he's giving them a commendation here for the fact that they had made the right moral choices in their life. In this oh yeah part of the letter, Jesus also lets them know this. He lets them know that their doctrinal integrity had not gone unnoticed. 
He said, you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. In other words, they weren't willing just to accept a message from anybody and believe it was truth. They were testing the spirits. They were testing to see, is this from God or not? If someone showed up and said, I'm apostle so-and-so, and I've got a message for you, they didn't just accept it. They tested them to see if they were apostles. Now, in the pure sense of the word, in order to be an apostle, some things had to be true. In the pure sense of the word, you had to know Jesus and have been with Jesus and heard Jesus teach and seen the miracles of Jesus and things like that before his death. In the purest sense of the word also, you had to see the resurrected Jesus. And also in the purest sense of the word to be an apostle, you are called by Jesus and set apart by Jesus to be an apostle. In other words, not every Tom, Dick, and Harry is an apostle. I'll tell you guys, it really bothers me sometimes today that some denominations, and it's just part of their culture, I realize that, but there are some churches out there, and they'll have, you know, like bishop so-and-so, and and then they go even above that and say, well, this is apostle so-and-so. I want to tell you something. There is no one alive today that fits the truest term of being an apostle. No one. Now, we can be called to serve him. And set aside to serve him. But they were testing. They weren't just believing everybody. They were testing. And and Jesus said, I've noticed this. I've noticed that you are concerned about truth. You're concerned about what the Bible really has to say. You're not just believing everything that you hear. You've tested people that claim to be apostles but are not. And you found them to be false. So Jesus here is bragging on them about their doctrinal integrity. Then Jesus also gives them a positive message about their dedication. Jesus says, your dedication has not gone unnoticed. Jesus said, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus, the one that's walking among the candlesticks, the churches, Jesus is watching this church at Ephesus, and he's giving them some very good input. He's giving them kind of an attaboy, and he said, I've been watching what you're doing, and I've noticed your good deeds, your works, and and I've noticed how dedicated you are. I've noticed that you persevered, and you faced hardship for my name's sake, but you've not given up. You've not grown weary. You've not quit. You've not said it. uh, It's just not worth trying to serve Jesus in the culture that we live in. He said, you've kept going. So Jesus is is bragging on them. He's saying you've done really well. In verse 6, we read it a moment ago, but he said this, you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's some debate about what that literally means. Some people believe it was just a group that was really involved in uh, some of the practices. They're wanting to be like Christian, but they're also wanting to worship idols and uh, eat things, sacrifice to idols, and possibly being involved in the sexual immorality. But the, the word actually means this when you look at what the word means. Nicolodians is the word that comes from the word Nicholas. And when you look at that in the Greek, it means to conquer the people. It also could be translated as a heretic. And a lot of theologians believe that Nicolaitans were doing this. They were setting up a caste system within the church. We are the priests, and you are the people. We're the ones that know the Bible. You don't need to read the Bible. We're the ones that will interpret to you what you need to believe. In other words, it was like an artificial thing being set up between the clergy and the people. And while in the Bible, guys, you see that there are pastors and there are evangelists and, and, and people like that. And then there's the, the general body of Christ, the people of Christ. We're still all part of the same body. We're part of the same church. And I'm not higher than you are. And I can't get up on a podium and say, because of who I am, I'm going to look down on you. And I can't say, I'm going to tell you everything to believe. And you don't even need to read your Bible. You just listen to me. And that is what a lot of people believe is meant here, and this church in Ephesus had rejected that. And Jesus said, that's good. Jesus said, I'm proud of you that you've rejected that. 
So at this point, Jesus gives them kind of, oh yeah, message. And like I said, there might have been a little bit of a celebration going on. After all, the CEO has just said, look how good things are going. But that's not the end of the letter. Because all of a sudden, the letter changes from an oh yeah letter to an oh no letter. Look what's said in verse 4 and 5. After Jesus has said all these good things, He said, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love, not lost their love for Christ, but they had gone away from it some. He said, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place. They were hearing this really good letter. And oh yeah, letter. Oh, we've got it going on. We've been serving Jesus. He's happy with us. And all of a sudden the celebration stops in midair. The high five stop in midair. This feeling of look at us as the church is Ephesus. Look how successful we are. By the way, they were the mother church that planted all the other churches here in Revelation. Look how important we are. Look, look how, how much we've got going on. Look how busy we are. Look how we're serving Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, but I have something against you. Can't you imagine being in that congregation when the letter is read to them? And they hear all the first part of it. Oh, I know your work and your good deeds and your perseverance and, and how, how you've made right choices and morality and, and how your doctrine is pure and you've, you know, you've tested things. I know all of that. Then all of a sudden, you hear this. I mean, put yourself there. Maybe you'd be, what, wait a minute, what was that he said now? What, 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 do you mean? what do you mean you've got something against us? Because we're really busy. <laughs> we're, we're really active. We're really doing a whole lot, Jesus, to serve you. We've been making right stands for you. Those, those Nicolaitan dudes you didn't like, you know, we're standing against them. We, we've been doing everything we can for you. What do you mean? You have something against us. See, I'm thinking this might be something that can get our attention or should get our attention in this day and time, guys, because here's the truth. We can get very busy doing the church thing. We can be very high in moral standards and still miss having a loving, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to notice three things. First of all, there's a problem. Houston, we've got a problem. Look at the problem. Yet I hold this against you. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus is speaking to a church that he had just bragged on for being so busy and doing so much for him. And yet he lets them know there's a problem. He says, I have something against you. They were a growing church. They were a busy church. To all you know, human terms, people looking at the church of Ephesus, they would have thought, man, that church must have something going on. The parking lot's full. Jesus lets them know that he had 
something against them, there's a problem. Here's what the problem is. Second thing, second thing's a question. Where's the passion? Where's the passion? He says, you've forsaken. Not lost it, but left it. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you fall and repent and do the things you did at the first. It's not that they weren't busy. It's not that they weren't serving Jesus. They were really busy. They were doing all the things we just read. And Jesus said, I took note of it. I've seen that you've done it. And it's like Jesus is saying, well, you know, you're really, you're really passionate in serving because you're doing a lot of good deeds. And you're really, you know, passionate about your morals. And you've got high moral standards. And you're really passionate about your dedication. And you don't give up easy. And you've not quit even though you're trying to serve me in a difficult culture in the city of Ephesus. It's like Jesus is saying, you're passionate about all this. You're passionate about what you do. I see it. You're passionate about not giving up. I see it. You're passionate about having right morals, right standards. I see that. You're passionate about your doctrine. I see that. But then Jesus is saying, but you're not passionate about me like you need to be. You're busy. You're doing all this stuff, but you're not as passionate about me as you need to be. Somewhere along the way, maybe they fell more in love with orthodoxy than they did in Jesus. Somewhere along the way, they're not loving Jesus like they should now. They're not serving Him maybe out of the right motives. Somewhere along the way, they quit loving other people like they should. And maybe they're trying to reach people, but maybe it's just because we want more people. Maybe they're not reaching people because they really love them. Paul said they used to have that love because in Ephesians 1, 15 through 16, he says this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. They had the love. But somewhere along the way, they have left it. They have forsaken it. Guys, It's not as much about what we do for Jesus as why we're doing it. We have to bring our motives to bear into this. Are you, am I, doing for Jesus? Was the church at Ephesus, were they doing for Jesus what they were doing because they were madly in love with Jesus? Or were they doing it just because they had a duty or just because they felt like they had an obligation and they were just going through the motions? What was their motive? Were they serving Jesus? Were they doing all the things Jesus bragged on them for? Were they doing all those things really because they love Jesus? Or maybe some of the people, they're just really busy and want to do things at church to be seen of other people. And have other people think well of them. And have other people brag about them. I mean, after all, look at all their activities. Surely they love Jesus. Look at everything they're doing. Surely they love Him. You know, look at all their dedication. Surely they, they must love Jesus. See, there's two kind of big issues there. One is a motive issue. Why we do what we do. Why do we do what we do? Why do I bother to get up here on Sunday morning? Why do I bother to study a message and put it together and come up here? Whatever you're doing for Jesus, why do you do what you do? What is your motive? What is my motive? And there's a second big issue here too. And that is this. So busy in ourselves that we don't have time for building a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
We've talked a lot about trying to get more of you involved and, you know, helping you find out how God wired you, how he made you, and how you can serve Jesus. You want to know one reason why that's a healthy thing? You want to know one reason why we need every person that's part of Day 3 Church doing the ministry that God has equipped them for and called them to? Because if you're not filling your spot, that means somebody else is overworking themselves. And before long, they're going to wear out because they're so busy they don't have time to work on their own personal love relationship with Jesus, and they grow stagnant in their faith. So how do you know that, Pastor? I've been there. I've burned out before. I've heard pastors get up and brag, oh, I'm gonna, I'd rather rust out than burn out. Listen, a pastor's crazy to say that. Because if you burn out, the moment you burn out, you're no longer serving Jesus the way he wants you to serve him. Because you are weak and you're beat down and you don't have the energy to be working on your relationship with him. And before you know it, you're just going through the motions. You're preaching just because you're supposed to preach that Sunday. You're singing just because you're supposed to sing that Sunday. You're teaching a Sunday school class just because you're supposed to do it that Sunday. But you're not doing it with a passion because you're so busy. You've not had time to be in love with Jesus. Where was the passion? That's the question that Jesus is asking them. Remember Mary and Martha? Remember the argument that was taking place? One was sitting at the feet of Jesus. The other one's busy over here in the kitchen, and she's mad at the one that's sitting over here at the feet of Jesus. She goes to Jesus and make her get up and come over here and help me and work. Jesus let her know it's not all about working. You need to be you know, doing the, the most important thing, sitting at my feet some too. You need to be spending time with me also. Man, this church at Ephesus, they had works, they had labor, they had patience. And yet, Jesus said, you've forsaken your love for me. And maybe they had forsaken the love for other people. They were a busy church with high spiritual standards. They couldn't tolerate wicked men. They wouldn't listen to false teachers. The work had been difficult, but they had not given up and fainted. And everyone would have thought, man, that church must have it going on. But Jesus said, I've got this against you. You've lost your love for me. Maybe they had a full parking lot. I've had people tell me that before about our church because they can drive by and see us here on 321 and say, man, you all have a lot of people coming. must have something going on. And you know, God has blessed us. We do have a full parking lot, especially at our second service and things like that. But can I tell you something? A full parking lot doesn't mean everyone's in love with Jesus. Maybe Ephesus had a full parking lot and they had greeters out in the parking lot smiling. They had greeters at the doors and, you know, greeters handing out materials and greeters sticking a cup of coffee in a bagel in somebody's hand when they come in. Maybe they had all kinds of creative stuff going on and wonderful music taking place. But Jesus looked at him and he said, you don't love me like you used to love me. What is the motive in what we do? You see, Jesus calls them here to remember. He calls upon them to remember when they loved him more. He calls upon them to remember and see where they've fallen from. Jesus says, remember and repent and get back to loving me like you need to and serving others because you love me. Get back to where you need to be. Labor, guys, is no substitute for love. Now, now, you listen good, okay? Don't you go out of here and say, oh, okay, so if I don't love Jesus enough, that means I don't have to be doing anything at church. And then just say, well, good, don't have to do anything. <laughs> That's not the deal. The deal is you need to be so in love with Jesus that you want to do something. I'm not trying to give you an out and say if you're not in love with Jesus as much as you should be, it's okay for you not to be doing anything and just to stay where you are. I'm giving you a challenge. You need to fall so in love with Jesus, you can't help but do something. It's not about the labor, it's about the love. And if you have the right kind of love, guess what? That inspires the labor. 
the service for Him. Can I ask you a really serious question? Has there ever been a time that you were more in love with Jesus than you are right now? That's tough, isn't it? That's a, you're, you're probably some of you thinking, you don't need to ask me that. I don't like that. Has there ever been a time that you are more in love with Jesus than you are right now? And if you have to honestly answer yes, that means there's a problem. That means you need to remember where you were and you need to fall back madly in love with Jesus. And here's why. There's a problem. Jesus said, the problem is, where's the passion? Why don't you love me like you need to love me? There was a penalty. Look at what he said the penalty is. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is Jesus, the one that's walking around the lampstand. You know what a lampstand is for? A lampstand is there to give light. It's the image of that lampstand that we talked about a few months ago when we did the series on the tabernacle. It was there in the holy place to give the priest light so he could see how to minister and what he was doing. And Jesus looked at the church at Ephesus and he says, if you don't repent from where you've fallen, if you don't get back in love with me again and be doing all the stuff you're doing out of the right motive, if you don't get back loving others again enough to try and change their lives, Jesus said, I'm going to come and take the lampstand. And guys, that really means this, a church without light. A church without light what good is a church that doesn't have light to give to people what good is a church that doesn't have spiritual light taking place in its midst what good is a church that doesn't have light that's first forth out of a love relationship with Jesus to try and impact a lost and dying world what good is a church without light and the answer is Nothing. A church without light has ceased to be a church. And Jesus said, if you don't fall back in love with me again and do the first things that you used to do out of love, you're going to quit being a church because I'm going to take the light away from you. You're thinking, oh, I don't like none of this. Uh, Hey, I lived with it all week. You get it for this little bit of time here. I hope God puts it in your heart and you take it away from here with you. I never want day three church to be a church without light. And if we don't love Jesus, guys, that's what will happen. If you show up to do stuff just because you think you're doing something for me or Daryl or just for day three church because you think it's a cool place to hang out, Jesus will take the light away and the power away and the doors of this place will shut and it will be as though we've never existed. Or we can keep the doors open for no reason. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of churches that have their doors open for no reason because they're not doing what they do for the right reason. We better do what we do because we love Jesus. So you might be asking, all right, what's the answer? What do we need to do? Well, you know, Jesus kind of said that in verse 7. He said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you get that? Can I tell you something? That's always the issue. Not just when we're dealing with seven letters to seven churches. Guys, this is always an issue. Every time you read the Bible, every time you sit in on a Bible study, every time you come to church and hear a message, this is always the issue. Will we listen to what the Spirit says? Will we listen to what God is telling us? Every time you open your Bible and read it, that's the question. Will I listen to what God is saying? Every time you sit there and I get up here and, you know, whatever, jabber off at you for an hour. If I'm telling you what God wants me to tell you, that's the question. Will you listen to what the Spirit says? So will we do that? Will we listen? Will we listen? He said you need to remember from where you've fallen. Will 
you listen? Is there some time in your life you love Jesus more than right now? Will you listen? Are you serving Jesus around here for some other reason than, than that you love Him? You have the wrong motives. You know, you're, you're doing it because you want other people to see you and think, man, look at me. I'm doing something for Jesus at Day 3 Church. Is that why you're doing what you do? That's the wrong motive. That's the wrong reason. Will you listen and serve Him out of the right motive? Are you just doing something to go through the motions because you think it's a duty? Will you listen and fall in love with Jesus and serve Him because you love Him? Will you listen that if we don't do that, He'll take our light away? The band's getting ready to come and play. As they do so, we're going to have this thing called a time of decision. And to start with this morning, you just simply need to evaluate this. Number one, do you know Christ is your Savior? Do you know Christ is your Savior? Because you may be here and never have trusted in Him at all before. You need to love Him because He first loved you. He went to the cross and He died for you. Do you know Christ? And if you don't, if you'll come, we would love to share with you how you can know Christ, how you can have a relationship with Him. Do you already know Him? Then will you listen to this? Do you have the right motive? Are you loving Him? Are you serving Him? For the right reason. You know why we ought to serve him? Last part of that verse I showed you a minute ago said this. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says to those who overcome, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In essence, he's just saying, I'll give you eternal life. Think about that. Those of us that have already received Christ as our Savior, He's given us eternal life. The least we can do is love Him. The least we can do is love Him back and serve Him because we love Him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, this morning I pray that You'd speak to our hearts and help us to be transparent before You. Father, I pray today, Lord, that you'll you'll guide us. Into truth for our own personal situations. Lord, if there's someone here that does not know you because they've never said yes to Jesus, speak to their heart and draw them to you. God, if we would have to confess to you as believers, people that already know you, that there's been a time in our lives that we loved you more than now. God, whatever's causing that, wherever we've stepped away from you, wherever we have forsaken that love, God, show it to us and help us to repent. Help us to turn back to you and love you like we should. Father, help us to be serving you out of the right motive, not to be seen of people, but to be seen by you. God, I pray you help each and every person at Day 3 Church not to be serving you just because they think it's a duty. Not just to be going through the actions, but God, help us to so fall in love with you day in and day out. God, forgive us if we ever go from Sunday to Sunday without thinking about you. God, call us to a personal relationship with you. Help us to answer that call, to read our Bibles, to pray, to love you day in and day out. Then help us to show up in this place and serve you out of the overflow, out of the abundance of the love that we have in our heart for you. God, help us to do that, that you never take away our light. 
For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I mentioned earlier, Daryl's upstairs with the children. Uh, Al, uh, Brother Al knew. I'm asking Al if he would come, kind of be up here at the front with me in case someone needs to come. And that way we've got a couple of people up here that we can uh, pray with you. And if you need to come, if you've got questions about what it means to receive Christ as your Savior, don't leave today without coming to ask. We'd love to share with you. But please, 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 as people that already know Jesus and people especially that's doing things at day three, if your motive's been wrong, if there's been a time you love Jesus more than now, come and get it right. Come and say, I'm sorry. Come and say, God, I want to serve you because I love you. Jesus, I want to serve you because I'm in love with you. Not to be seen by others. Not because I think I have to. But I want to do it because I love you. God speaks to your heart. We invite you to come. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.